0: Yeah. So, for several years, since I was actually high school age, uh, with various church teams and work teams and intramural teams, I've, I've played a lot of slow-pitch softball on several different teams, and I'm kind of one of those guys without a position, but, and so I end up playing a lot of different spots, and what, one position that I play a lot is pitcher. I end up pitching a lot of teams, because sometimes it's kind of hard to find somebody who can actually pitch. Well, I know this is going to come a shock to a lot of you guys, but really, I'm not all that athletic. Yeah. Yeah. You <laughs> guys be a little more surprise there. What? No. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for stroking my ego. I really appreciate that. Uh, I'm not particularly athletic. And one thing in particular is when I'm pitching, I'm not always all that accurate. Sometimes I struggle with control. And it happens sometimes. Sometimes I'm on and I'm throwing them all over, and sometimes I'm not. One of the things about slow-pitch softball is it's different than fast-pitch softball or baseball. It, in fast-pitch softball or baseball, the pitcher is actually trying to strike the batter out, and they're trying to use all kinds of like weird fancy pitches, or trying to fool the batter into swinging at a pitch they shouldn't swing at. In, in softball, in slow-pitch softball, you can't really do that because you really only have one pitch, and that's slow and over the plate. And you have to do that. And so. Sometimes when I'm struggling and not pitching very well, one of the things that teammates say to me a lot is don't, don't try to get this guy out. Just just let him, let him make contact and then we'll get him out. And see, they're, they're thinking that I'm trying to be too fancy when, and they're misunderstanding why I'm not throwing very accurately when really I'm just throwing bad pitches and trying my best. But, but there's something to what they're saying that really rings true. And that is, if you trust somebody, your actions are going to reflect that. If I trust my teammates, I'm not going to try to take on everything on myself and try to get this batter out. I will trust them to do that. And so my pitching should reflect my trust for my teammates. And all relationships work like that. They work like that. But, but sometimes, sometimes it takes time for that to mature. So one example is I've, I've recently started dating someone for a few months. And in my heart, I totally trust this girl. I really do. I trust her with everything. Like, everything on those lists that we did today. I trust her with all that and more. But, but sometimes one thing I'm learning, though, is just because I feel like I trust her, just because I think that I trust her, I, I also have to learn how to trust her. See, at times, even though I say I trust her and I believe that I trust her, I find myself sometimes holding back certain things, not saying certain things, because I'm not sure how she's going to react to that. And so, even though I believe that I trust her, it's taken me time to actually learn how to do that, how to act on that trust. But that's just the process of relationships as they mature. That's how relationships mature. You learn, you grow, and as you go along, you get the hang of it, you learn more and more. And the more you learn, the more you get into it, the more your actions reflect that. And see, we've been talking about spiritual maturity this semester, and as I've said several times, that maturity is ultimately a growth in function. And when that function doesn't grow, that's a sign of an underlying problem. An analogy I've used is just kind of basic human development. As a little baby starts off, baby is the least mature person in the world. Nothing functions right. All they can do is sleep and be cute and eat. And as they grow up, they gain more function. As they mature, they gain more function. And ultimately, we even know, like, at a certain time in, in life, a certain things are supposed to happen. At a certain time, a child is supposed to start walking. At a certain time, a child is supposed to start talking. And you give or take a little bit, but when things don't happen, when they're supposed to happen, that's a sign that there's something wrong. For example, if a child doesn't make eye contact at a certain stage, that's a sign that the child might be autistic. And so, kind of one of the concepts we get here is that maturity should have some kind of visible sign to it. And James says that about faith, and faith is our topic tonight. And James says that as we mature in our relationship with God, our actions should reflect that growth. They should reflect that maturity it should reflect that trust. He says in chapter 2 verse 18, he says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. And see, James is saying that failure to do that is a sign that there's something wrong, that there's something that's not maturing in their relationship. And James is even willing to take it, further than most Protestants anyway are willing to take it, and says that even our actions save us. And see, that, that that's a controversial passage. That's a controversial part of Scripture. Because especially in the Protestant Reformation, there was this notion of salvation by faith only and not by our actions. And actually, Paul deals with the same stuff. And you see a lot of the faith-only stuff in Paul. But here in James is saying, no, it's not just faith. But it's actually deeds that save you too. And so it seems like there's a contradiction. But see, the contradiction is they're actually, they're addressing different problems in these passages. Paul is addressing something different than James is addressing here. What Paul is addressing is, and Martin Luther was also addressing, was this religious system in which doing good work, we have to do good works, that cancel out our bad works. And so you have this balance going on. And so every time you mess up, in the Old Testament you would have to offer up a sacrifice. Every time you sin, to cancel that sacrifice out. And you know the Catholics during the Protestant Reformation, I mean, they were selling forgiveness of sins. And so they're addressing one thing when they're talking about faith only. James is actually combating something different here. James is combating a false doctrine that where people are saying, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. They say, I put my faith in Him. And therefore, I can go out and do anything I want. It doesn't matter what I do. And see, that's not accurate. Paul wouldn't agree with that either. No, no, Martin Luther. In fact, Paul addresses it a little bit differently. But he addresses the same problem. And part of that problem, James is addressing here, is it goes to the nature of what faith is itself. And see, here's what James is saying. James is saying that faith isn't just belief. It's not just belief. There's something more to faith than just believing. And in chapter 2 verse 19, he says this. He gives an example. He says, You believe that there's only one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And that's accurate. You find all through the Gospels of demons professing their belief in Jesus. One example is in Mark 1 verse 21 and it says, They went to Capernaum and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. See, he accepts... This demon, he, he professes that Jesus is powerful. He even professes that Jesus is the Holy One of God. This demon here has really good theology. This theology is spot on. But nobody, nobody would consider that belief to be faith. It just doesn't jive. It's just not right. So there is, what is the difference between belief and faith? James gives an example here. The next verse is, um, picking up in verse 20 of chapter 2. It says, You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And a scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. See, James quotes a story from Abraham. But see, he's using the part towards the end where Abraham finally gets it right. See, if, you're, if you look at the whole story of Abraham in Genesis, and we're gonna look at some of the highlights, you find out that Abraham's faith and Abraham's relationship with God is kind of immature leading up to the story. He, he does a lot of things right, but in the midst of doing a lot of things right, he also kind of doesn't quite get it exactly right. He doesn't exactly do what God says. He does it kind of partially. And so we're gonna look through different parts of Genesis and the first part is we're going to start at the beginning of Abraham's story. In Genesis chapter 12, starting with verse 1 through 4, He said, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go into the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. All the people on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, all the people they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. And what happens here is God makes several promises to Abraham. He promises him that he will make him into a great nation, that he will bless him, that he will bless those who curse who bless him and curse those who curses him. So he's, he's promising protection for Abraham and he's promising that he's going to have a lot of offspring, he's going to become a great nation. God made a lot of promises to Abraham and it's important to kind of keep keep track of when you read the story because if, if Abraham had truly trusted and acted on these promises and truly had a full faith it would have affected his actions a little differently than the way they kind of play out and we kind of start off with the first one right here right off the bat it looks like Abraham is obeying God because he gets up and he leaves and he goes where God tells him to but he doesn't quite follow all of God's instructions here. It says, leave your country, he did that, left his people, and leave your father's household. And see, he doesn't quite leave his father's household. It said that he took his nephew Lot with him, and he took all the people that he had accumulated, and he acquired in her life. All these people would have been part of his father's household, and he's supposed to leave them behind, because he's supposed to trust God. He's supposed to trust God's protection, and also the reason Lot Lot's really important to this because at this point, Abraham doesn't have any children. And yet God promises him he's gonna make a great make him into a great nation. What's he need for that to happen? He needs children. Well right now Lot is his heir and would inherit any blessing that God gives him and would be inherit everything that Abraham has. And so Abraham gets this promise from God that God's gonna make him into a nation. But he's kind of going off on his own here and taking his heir with him, kind of as an insurance policy. And see, here's what happens. He takes Lot with him, but that ends up backfiring in chapter 14. Because what ends up happening is Lot gets in some trouble with the king. The king captures and takes him away. And so then Abraham has to kind of go away with what doing and has to fight this king and ultimately save Lot. And if he had just followed God's instruction, he wouldn't have had to do any of that. And in part 2, also in chapter 12, we have another story with Abraham. Picking up in verse 10, it says, Now there was famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. See, he goes into Egypt and the story says, he tells his wife to pretend like he's his sis- like she's his sister because he's afraid that the Egyptians are going to kill him in order to hook up with her. There's a problem with that. God, God That goes against what God has promised to do. God said that he was going to protect Abram. And he said he was going to make him into a great nation. And that promise hasn't been fulfilled yet. See, God has made promises to Abram, but he he doesn't quite understand that yet. He's not quite built up that trust yet. And so he takes this in his own hands, and his action doesn't reflect someone who believes that God is going to keep his promises. And in part three, when you get into chapter 16, Abram, one of the things about Abram, he doesn't have a son yet, and it's been a while. And see, a lot of times when we think that God's going to do something for us, We just assume it's going to be right away, right on time. And so God promises that I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a lot of offspring. I think the natural assumption there is, okay, he's made this promise, now he's going to fulfill it. Well, Abram, he's getting older, he's getting older. He's already well Him and his wife are already well past their childbearing years. It's going on and going on. And he's still not having the children. It doesn't look like God's going to come through with the offspring. So Sarah gets an idea. He says, okay take my maidservant Hagar and have a child with her and that child can be my child and can be the child of the promise." And so Abraham does that and has a son named Ishmael with Hagar. And so he finally has his first son. But see that wasn't what God had intended. God had intended this promise to be given to the offspring of Abraham and Sarah, his wife. It was supposed to be to them. And so ultimately he fulfills that promise, and Sarah does have a son named Isaac, and so this original plan where they took it upon themselves to produce offspring with Hagar, it ends up backfiring in chapter 21, because what happens is Sarah becomes very jealous of Hagar and of Ishmael, and it just caused a lot of problem in their household. And if they just trusted God, that none of this would have happened in the first place. And so what happens is Hagar and Ishmael end up getting banished because Sarah is upset. And they almost die in the desert, but God does have mercy on them. It actually extends part of that promise that he had, she had given to Abraham and said that I'm going to make your son, I'm going to make Ishmael, into a great nation also. But if they just trusted God, if they just trusted that God did what he promised he was going to do, Things would have been okay. And they wouldn't have had to go through all that headache there. And then again, in chapter 20, they go to another place. And once again, Abraham, he's already done this one. You would think he would learn from prior mistakes. They go to another place, the land of a king named Abimelech. And once again, Abraham says, Sarah, I know how beautiful you are. They're going to kill me so they can get to you. So pretend like you're my sister again. And it's it's just like... It's like the writer of Genesis got lazy almost, and it's like, I need some filler here. Let's just take this story and put it here. I I mean, it just, it comes out almost identical. Abraham, his his faith still hasn't matured to the point where he trusts God fully. He trusts God a lot. He really does. I mean, he did up and leave his land and went to the strange place that God told him to go. and several other parts, he, he trusts God when he conquers the guy who had kidnapped Lot and these other kings were kind of talking to him was like, I'll tell you what, you can take all the possessions, Abraham, and we'll take all the people. And Abraham's like, no, I don't want any part of this. I don't want you to be able to say that you provided for me. Only God will provide for me. And so he goes through moments where he doesn't quite get it until he gets to this part, gets to the story that James quotes here and that comes from chapter 22 in Genesis, picking up at verse one. It says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go into the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on, on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So early in the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took him with two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood there for a burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I, go, I and the boy go up there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your own son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by the horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of a son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And and to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. And so, here, Abraham finally gets it. He finally trusts God, he finally trusts God's promises. See, one thing we kind of miss in this story sometimes is we read it, and we just look at it as Abraham having to offer up his son. Which, in itself, has got to be just terribly difficult, terribly gut-wrenching. But see, there's more to the story than that. And actually, it's because of this part of the story, I think, that Abraham was able to go through with this. See, remember back, God has promised to make Abraham into a great nation. He's promised that his offspring will be many. And here it is, this, his son Isaac is the fulfillment of that promise. His son Isaac is the ful- ful- fulfillment of that promise. And here God is telling him to offer up not just a son, but to trust the promise that he had made to him. See, if Isaac dies here, that's a serious hit on the promise that God had made to Abraham. But Abraham, by this point, had come to trust the promise that God made him. He had come to rely on the promise that God had made to him. And he didn't know exactly how it was going to work out. He didn't know exactly how it was going to work out. But at this point, he didn't worry about that. He didn't worry about making plan B or trying to figure out some way. He just trusted God to provide in the situation. And so finally, his actions fully connect with his faith. See, I think the, I think the point James is making here is, is the question is this. What would have it said about Abraham's faith if he hadn't? offered Isaac. What would, what, would, what would it say about his faith that he hadn't offered Isaac? See, I think that's the connection with faith and works here that James is making. See, if, if we truly trust God, if we truly have faith, our actions will reflect that. And see, I think faith matures in four parts. I think there's kind of four stages to it. They're not exact, but the first stage actually is belief. Faith does start with belief. You believe who God is. You believe in who God is. You believe He exists. You believe in who He is and what He can do. You believe He created the earth. You believe He can make anything happen. That He has power over everything, and that He cares what's going on and He cares about you. Belief is the first part of that, and then the second part of that is trust. So your trust is based on that belief, and ultimately, it's trusting in the promises that God has made that He, and he will keep Him. They keep them. You know, trusting that he will provide for us, that he'll take care of us, that he has a situation under control, and maybe we don't understand how that's going to play out. And maybe it's not even going to play out like we would have planned it if we were in charge. But that God is in control and that he will take care of you one way or the other. And see, and that trust built into the third stage. And the third stage is courage. You believe in who God is, you trust His promises, and because of those promises, you then believe that you can handle the situation that God's put you in. You believe that you can do the things that He's calling you to do. In Abraham's case, you believe that you can put your son on his son on the altar, and because of God's promises, something's going to work out. So third thing is courage. Feeling like you have the strength, believing that you can do that. And then the fourth stage is submission, is submitting yourself to God. Because you can do the things that God wants you to do, you will do them. And so, like I said, the point of James' passage is this, what if Abraham would not offered Isaac? See, I think what happens is some point, and our faith is never perfect, I mean, it's rarely perfect, and we're gonna struggle on these at some point some point we'll get to believe and trust, but maybe we won't be able to get the courage. And it's kind of a learning process, it's a growing process. You see that Abraham story, he started off believing God, but not fully trusting him because he wasn't fully trusting, he wasn't fully having courage, and so he's acting out of fear. And so ultimately he wasn't doing what God had told him to do. But as his relationship with God matured, as he saw God work over and over, he started to hit all of these things. He believed, he trusted, It gave him courage, and then he was able to do what he was asked to do. And so, going back to the kind of theme of maturity, in our relationship with God, as we grow in our relationship with God, as we grow in our faith with Him, it has to grow beyond belief. If we get stuck in the belief stage, you know, just like with other maturity, with other development, if you get stuck in one stage and don't progress to the next, that's a sign that something... something isn't quite right. So if isn't quite right. Where James will actually go farther than I would personally be willing to go with it. James says if I don't see actions, I don't think you have faith at all. So I don't think you're safe. I honestly don't have the courage to say that, because I've been hit with the faith only stuff for so long, but um... But I will say this. If we're not seeing actions, there's something in your faith that hasn't quite developed fully yet and so if what you believe isn't affecting your actions I just want to challenge you guys tonight to think about really ponder this really think about this where are you getting tripped up in this stage are you believing and trusting but not having courage Do you have the courage but you're just not submitting yourself Do you not trust God's promises or are you doing all these things and, and you're probably doing them very well in some areas. In other areas, you're having trouble trusting God's promises. What areas are you struggling with trusting God's promises? What promises do you need to really cling to? And so tonight, we were going to have an activity that was going to last about a half an hour. But it was just to be done two minutes ago. And so I'm just going to wrap up here, unfortunately. Um, it would have been fun. It would have been good. But wrap it up and so